If you could please find in your copy of God's Word, Acts chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 36 through 47 together. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching, God is converting, and Luke is giving us a play-by-play. It's glorious to see what God did in the early church. In Acts chapter 2, we we begin in verse 36. This is the last line of Peter's sermon. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes... And received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you're new or a visitor, my name's Mark. I'm one of the pastors of Heritage. And the last couple, well, last week we started a sort of mini-series that we're doing on the second half of our mission as a church. And um, back the last several months in the evenings, we've been working through the first part of that mission, which is really who we are as a church. And then uh, this week and last week and next week, we're going to be unpacking the second half, which is really the purpose of our church, why we exist, what we're here for. And our mission is really simple. It's in the Bible and we, we don't come up with it. We just take it from Jesus and try to work it out and be obedient to it. It's what's popularly called the Great Commission, which is to make disciples, to mature disciples, and to multiply disciples. And next week, Pastor Jonathan will come and unpack the last part of that, which is multiplying disciples. Pastor Ted last week did making, and I've got the middle, maturing. So this morning, we're going to talk about how the disciples of Jesus grow, how the disciples of Jesus are matured. It is God's purpose That disciples be made, according to Matthew 28, 
and that they be taught to do or to observe or to obey or to practice what Jesus has commanded. And that's maturity. That's the definition of maturity. Maturity, according to Jesus, is not defined by how much Bible knowledge you have. It's not defined by how many Bible studies you attend or worship services you go to or prayers you pray or any of that. Maturity, biblically defined, is obedience. It's defined as growing into obedience to what Jesus has commanded. That's maturity. That's how we are to measure maturity as a church and to measure maturity in our own lives. To the degree that we are learning and obeying what Jesus has said. That's the goal. But the question then becomes is, what's the pathway to maturity? How do we grow as Christians? This morning, we're only going to focus on one verse. Acts chapter 2. Verse 42. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we have a fourfold pathway to maturity. I don't believe this is accidental that Luke put these four things here. I believe that these are what Jesus did with his own disciples. And these are what the church is. This is what this, these are the activities that are to characterize the church in all ages at all times. The verse reads, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers, those four components. So what I'm going to do this morning in the time we have together is unpack those four phrases, apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. So I'm going to talk about the pathway to maturity first. Then I'm going to talk about the prerequisites for maturity. They devoted themselves. So we're just going to look at the one verse and take it a word at a time, but we're going to kind of start in the middle of verse, then go back at the beginning. So I'm going to start with the phrase, the apostles teaching. Now, as we walk through these four phrases, I want to answer really four questions for each phrase. Okay. So I hope it's really simple. I want to answer what does the phrase mean? What's it talking about? Where do we see it exemplified in Jesus's life and ministry with the disciple, with his four, with his 12 disciples? Why does that particular aspect or how does that particular aspect mature a Christian? And then lastly, how is HBC seeking to be obedient to that? Okay. So I want to, I want to talk about what it means, where we see it exemplified in Jesus's life. Why is it that that's supposed to mature us or how it's supposed to mature us. And then how are we seeking to work that out? Because that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to take the Bible and work it in to our church life. So first phrase, apostles teaching, apostles teaching. What does this mean? They devoted themselves to the apostles teaching. Well, it's simple. They devoted themselves to what the apostles taught. The apostles were the 12 disciples of Jesus and they taught certain things about Jesus and about his person and work, which they learned from Jesus. And they conveyed that teaching to the new Christians. And this teaching was not just heard by them or understood by them. It certainly was that, but it was obeyed by them. In other words, these disciples were made and the first way in which they were matured was to be taught what the apostles were teaching them, which they learned from Jesus. 
Jesus himself knew that it was critical that his disciples have a doctrinal foundation. Christianity is inherently and necessarily cognitive. That is, it involves the mind. If we ignore that aspect, we ignore biblical maturity. Maturity growing cannot happen apart from thinking. And it cannot happen apart from hard thinking and sometimes long thinking. It, it, it involves thinking about what Jesus has said, understanding that, understanding how that works out in our lives, and then giving ourselves wholeheartedly to it. And I think in some, in some ways, Christianity has, has fallen on hard times with that, at least in the Western church. Sometimes it, it's, it's not cool or popular to think of Christianity as doctrinal or cognitive, but it is inescapably so. There is a head component to our faith. And that's why God has given us a book to read and study and learn and digest over a lifetime because that's how disciples get matured. And Jesus knew this. Jesus knew this, which is why he spent so much time in the gospels engaging in teaching, answering people's questions, or sometimes not answering them, depending on the context, but engaging in theological dialogue, issues concerning what God taught, what God said in the Old Testament, and he, in, he interpreted that and taught it. I mean, that's what Matthew 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, is all about. It's his teaching of the Old Testament. And people wanted to know, the disciples wanted to know what Jesus said and what he meant by what he said. And so there is a foundation on which the church is built. And according to Jesus, it's the confession of him as the son of God. So we must understand who Jesus is if the church is going to be built at all. Now, how is it or why is it that teaching, doctrinal teaching about Jesus, who he is, what he did, what that means, matures? Remember what John seventeen seventeen says? Sanctify them, that is disciples. Sanctify the disciples. Make them holy. Make them grow in maturity. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. There's Jesus. So Jesus' idea for how disciples are matured is through sanctification by the truth. The truth comes and that is God's agent of maturity. It's the way, and it's one agent in which he grows us into maturity. There's even a, a, even a more powerful passage, I think, in Acts chapter 20, if you want to look there real fast. Acts 20, verse 32, where Paul connects the word of God to our maturity. He says in Acts 2, 32, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. There's the apostles teaching, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. There it is, right? The, the, the word of his grace, the teaching of the apostles is given to build us up and to give us an inheritance amongst all those who are sanctified. 
made mature, made holy in Christ. So that's the first. And how are we seeking to work this out as a church? What I'm doing right here. The preaching of God's word is absolutely necessary for Christian maturity. It's absolutely necessary because the apostles taught it to the people who were gathered. We can't get outside of that, which means in this age of technology with preachers, you can get access to who are far better than me, who you can listen to and you should listen to and benefit from that still cannot replace public gatherings in which the word of God is opened by a person you can see (laughs) and by a person who's in front of you. So that is inescapable to God's plan for maturity, which is why we as a church place a premium on that. We believe in the word of God preached and taught. And so with our disciple you classes or with our Sunday morning preaching, we take that seriously because it's here that the apostles teaching is opened up and explained and applied to us because we believe that's the way God set it up for our maturity. So that's the first phrase. Second phrase, fellowship devoted themselves to the fellowship. Now fellowship is not an easy word. It doesn't just mean they devoted themselves to suppers together on Sunday nights. Or they got together and hung out in each other's homes. That's fellowship. Fellowship is a much richer, broader word in the New Testament than just that. It includes those things, certainly, but it's not just those things. I wrote down here that fellowship includes at least three aspects. The first aspect of fellowship is relationship. It's relationship. First John chapter one, verse three, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And this fellowship we have, and you also have it with us. So there's this relationship aspect of fellowship. It's relating to God and relating to each other. It's not first an activity. It's first a relationship. It's a belonging to one another in the body of Christ. That's what fellowship is. Second aspect of fellowship is its partnership. It's actually used in Luke chapter five. Let me read you the verse. It's used in Luke chapter five and verse 10 to talk about a business partnership. This, the context is Jesus calling his first disciples who were fishermen. And then it says in verse 10, so also were James and John sons of Zebedee who were partners with Simon fellowship. That's business relationship. We are business partners. We're not merely related to each other. We're business partner. What's our business? Kingdom business. Mission. Fellowship does not exist apart from shared mission, shared passion, shared devotion to a cause, shared pursuit of something. That fellowship does not happen if that isn't there. So it's relationship and it's partnership and it involves sharing relating to one another on a deeply personal and practical and spiritual level, helping one another with practical generosity. I mean, we see this right in our own text in Acts chapter two, which pastor Jonathan is going to open up more next week. And all who believed verse 44 were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's a description of fellowship, the devotion that they had to the fellowship, to their relationships, to their partnership, to their mutual cause. And they made sure that the business 
was prospering and they took care of each other. And we see this all over the place. Romans chapter 12, verse 13, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 13, Hebrews 13, 16, 2 Corinthians 8, 13 and 14. If I had time, I'd turn you there. But the whole point is there's a sharing aspect to fellowship. And of course, we see this exemplified in the, Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus as well, where his disciples were in deep relationship with him and with each other. And also they were devoting themselves to a common mission. And willing to meet each other's needs on the way in, in pursuit of that mission. So how does that mature? Philippians chapter 1. Not Philippians. Philemon 1. The word fellowship is used again. Listen carefully here to how Philemon talks about the relationship between fellowship and maturity. As soon as I get there. Okay, Philemon, Philemon, verse six, there's only one chapter. The second half of the verse, I pray that you will be mutually encouraged or built up by share through sharing the sharing of each other's faith. So you have this, this, there's going to, there's this building up through fellowship. That's the point. And the primary, the primary uh, application there is not evangelism first and foremost, but it's, it's talking about relationship and partnership. And that's a means by which we're built up and matured. So how do we as heritage Baptist church seek to work that out? This is why we're, we're moving aggressively and trying to place a greater emphasis on the importance of community groups. Because this is the place, not only where deeper relationships can be formed, but where common mission can happen. And we see that both of those things as being critical. There must be the relational component and there must be the partnership component because that's what fellowship is. And so if we're going to be devote ourselves to fellowship, we have to devote ourselves to relationships and we have to devote ourselves to to partnership and mission. And we see our community groups as being a, a main way in which that gets worked out because We're calling our community groups to relate to one another, to care for one another, to love one another, but also to be in common partnership and on common mission together. So that's the second pathway to maturity. Apostles teaching and fellowship. Thirdly, breaking bread. Breaking bread. To the breaking of bread. Now that's a reference to not merely meals, although it includes that, because in the early church, There were meals together, but those meals also in part had the Lord's Supper embedded within them. And so this is a reference to primarily taking the Lord's Supper together as a community. And we see Jesus stressing the importance of this with his own disciples when he modeled it, when he ate Passover in Matthew 26 and instituted the Lord's Supper with his disciples. So he sets with his disciples and then he says, do this in remembrance of me, assuming that churches are going to continue to gather together like that and break bread just as Jesus commanded and just as Jesus modeled. Now, you may not have thought about this before, but the Lord's Supper is given to us for our spiritual maturity. And you've heard that before, no doubt, but maybe you haven't thought about how is it that the Lord's Supper actually matures us? Is there a verse that talks about that? 
And there is, and I want you to I want you to look there with me. Would you turn in your Bibles or go on your app or whatever you're looking at to First um, Corinthians chapter ten? And we're just going to see one verse here, and it's going to talk about how the Lord's Supper matures us. First Corinthians ten and verse sixteen. The cup of blessing that we bless, talking about the cup that represents Christ's blood, the cup, cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation? That's fellowship, by the way. That's the same word, partnership, communion, relationship. Is it not a fellowship in the blood of Christ? It's the same Greek word, koinonia. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ so that, okay, we've already seen fellowship. The word koine is given to us for maturity. And right here, it says the Lord's supper is a part of fellowship. So it must then be a part of maturity if it's a part of fellowship and fellowship is for the purpose of maturity. But I think the very word participation or fellowship or koinonia is important. Because the Lord's Supper is given to us not merely as a memorial. It's not merely given to us to help us remember what Jesus did for us. That is certainly part of it. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four and 25, do this in remembrance of me. So the Lord's Supper is clearly linked to the past. And the Lord's Supper is clearly linked to the future. Remember 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So there's a future aspect to it. Also, Matthew 26, 29. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day that I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. So there's this future aspect to the Lord's Supper as well. But did you know there's a present aspect too? There's a present aspect to the Lord's Supper. And it's in 1 Corinthians ten sixteen. It is the cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not the communion participation in the blood of Christ? The bread in which we break, is it not the participation in the body of Christ? Here's what I think that means. Christ right now in his resurrected glorious humanity, seated at the right hand of God, is dispensing blessing through the Lord's Supper. As we take it, as we remember him, as we... Do it as scripture calls us to do it regularly, as often as we do it. It is a means by which Jesus blesses and matures his people. That's just, that's just absolutely critical, which is why the Lord's supper has to be present where the church is present. And this is why we do it, why we're committed to do it. And in some cases, you know, in in, in our history, why we set aside an evening to it and give it focus and attention and not just, you know, come and do it at your leisure. But we, we we try to give it focus because we believe it's a part of maturity. It's a part of the body of Christ and it's a gift given to the body of Christ that we might grow. So... This is also why we, we want to take the Lord's Supper together, but we also understand that the early church took it in the context of meals together. So meals are important too. 
eating together. How many times is Jesus seen in the gospels eating with his disciples? Eating meals. I mean, this is so, we don't typically think of food as important for Christian maturity, but it is. It is critical for relationship and partnership and fellowship that food be there. Because Jesus came, the son of man came eating and drinking. How are we going to accomplish the mission of Christ if we don't do that? If the son of man came to seek and save that with loss and the son of man came eating and drinking, then the means by which he saved the loss was by eating and drinking with them. It's just, it's right there. And then first John two, three says that if we follow him, we must walk in the steps that he walked. So that just seems really clear to me. Food is transcultural. It exists in all cultures. It's critical. It doesn't matter if it's steak or hot dogs or whatever. It's just got to be there. And it's got to be a part of Christian fellowship and Christian community, which is why we want to have fellowship meals on the fifth Sunday at nights. And why we want to eat together as community groups and encourage that practice. It's not just because we think it's cool. Please understand that. Please understand. It's not. We're not trying to just come up with stuff. We're trying to look at the Bible and say, hmm, that seems to be what it says. Let's do it. That's it. I'm, I'm not cool. I'm not creative. I don't have enough good ideas. I'm just trying to take what the Bible says and say, okay, we're not doing that well. How can we do it better? Because that's what God has said we should do for maturity. I don't want to do things that God has not promised to bless to the maturity of his church. Who wants, we got, we got too little time. Why waste it on things that won't mature? Let's devote ourselves to the things that do. So there's breaking of bread. Finally, prayers, prayers. Now, obviously this is not just talking about private prayer, although that's important. It's not just talking about, you know, your prayer life and you praying and things like that. It's talking about you gathering with other Christians and praying. It's talking about more corporate prayer gatherings because everything else in Acts 2.42 is corporate too. The apostles teaching is done corporately. The Lord's supper is done corporately. The fellowship is done together. So this is done together too. The prayers are done together. And these prayers would have been temple prayers and home prayers. They would have been prayers where they gathered together in the, in the larger temple and prayed in part of the larger worship gathering. And then also where they were meeting in homes. It says they were doing that verse 46 day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. No doubt prayer was in there and having favor with all the people. So we as a church take very seriously our call to be a prayerful community. And This is being pressed home to me more and more in these days. The importance and the necessity of prayer. Jesus considered it absolutely necessary to teach his disciples to pray and model for them and to pray for them. I mean, we see him teaching how to pray. Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer. We see him him modeling prayer in John 17. And then we see him instructing his disciples how to pray and modeling it for them all over the place, especially Luke 11. He, he model he prays before he sends the disciples and chooses the disciples. But here's a question. How does prayer mature? 
How does, because we want to really get, it, it wasn't good enough for me this week in looking at this text to kind of just say, okay, let me just explain what these terms mean. And we'll just talk about, I wanted to know why is it that that matures? How does it mature? Because that's really, I mean, if you were a thinking person, which I assume everyone is that you would want to know that. Why is it that that matures? And here's the verse, Ephesians chapter three. Would you turn there or look there? Ephesians three and verse 16. There's a link between prayer and spiritual maturity. We'll start in 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Is that not maturity? (laughs) I mean, prayer is the vehicle through which spiritual power is unleashed into your inner being. That is absolutely necessary to maturity because we can't mature apart from God's sovereign help. So that Christ, verse 17, may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. That's a definition of maturity. That's God's goal for us, that Christ would be formed in us and that we out of that would live a life of love toward God, brother, and neighbor. That's maturity. And he says, how do we get that? Bowing our knees before the Father and asking him for it. That's how. So prayer is absolutely critical to spiritual maturity. And so this church, this early first church here, had the apostles teaching, had the fellowship, had the breaking of bread, and had the prayers. And those four components were the components, the pathway to spiritual maturity. And those four components have to be there. So how do we seek to engage prayers as a church? We want to pray in our community groups and starting in July, starting to have prayer meetings more regularly as a corporate body. Reason why we see, we see here in acts two, there's a whole church prayer meeting and there's individual home meetings of prayer, both, 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 both. And so we want to take seriously as much as we can right now. And we can do this. I think realistically as a church right now is having times where we, as a body pray, and then having times where we, as parts of the body gather separately in homes to pray. And that is here. And that's, I think both are important. So those, those things, those four aspects are the pathway to maturity. Now, let me talk here in conclusion for the last 10 minutes or so about the preconditions for maturity or the prerequisites for maturity. And I'm just going to take these three words right at the beginning of Acts 2, 42 and talk about them. Here's the first one. They, and they, they, who are the, they, the, they are the Christians that have been described from verse 37 through verse 41. Let me say this. If all of this has not happened for us, we can't begin to be mature. Who's the they? These people are people who have heard the gospel. 
They have heard the announcement that God is willing to let you get away with everything you've ever done. That's the gospel. God is willing to forgive you of all of your sins and give you a righteousness, which you did not and cannot earn, which is a perfect record and a plus, which will go on your grade card in heaven and allow you entrance into fellowship with God for all eternity in the new heavens and new earth. And that was procured made possible by the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, God's only son. That he came and he lived in our place, perfectly obeying the law of God where we have failed to. He died a death that we deserve to die on the cross under the wrath of God, receiving in his body the penalty for our sins. He was punished for our sins, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him and by his stripes were healed, Isaiah 53. And it's through hearing that message and transferring our trust from ourselves to him and his work. And we see all that right here in Acts chapter 2. These people hear that message. They're cut to the heart. They realize that they killed Jesus. And that's what happens when we're converted too. We realize that we had a hand in his death. And that cuts us personally. And we repent and we believe that as we turn from our sin, we entrust ourselves to Jesus. We receive a full forgiveness for all of our sins that we ever have or ever will commit. We receive the Holy Spirit, which is a new spiritual power, new spiritual life. We are baptized and we are added into the membership of a church. All that has to happen before somebody can be spiritually mature. So we have to hear the gospel, be cut to the heart, repent, believe, be baptized, join a church, receive the forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit. Now, why do I say, and this this is what blew me away again this week, is the importance of receiving the forgiveness of sins up front from a spiritual maturity. We have to be forgiven up front in order to make headway in spiritual maturity. I read a great story this week about that, the importance of that. Some of you know who Steve Brown is. He's a pastor. And he had a daughter who was in a very, very difficult English literature class. When I I think back to my college days, I mean, those are the classes that I still don't like to think about how difficult some of those English lit classes were. And she came to her dad and she says, I've got to go talk to the professor. Because if I I don't transfer out of this class, I'm going to fail. And so he and his daughter went to see the professor and not in one of those mean kind of ways, but in a very loving way. So here's what, here's what Steve Brown wrote. He said, she, that is the head of the English department looked up and saw me standing there by my daughter and can tell that she, her name's Robin was about to cry. There were some students standing around and because the teacher didn't want Robin to be embarrassed, she dismissed the saying, saying, I want to talk to these people alone. As soon as the students left and the door was closed, Robin began to cry. I said, I'm here to get my daughter out of the, out of the English class. It's too difficult for her. The problem with my daughter is that she's too conscientious. So can you put her into a regular English class? The teacher said, Mr. Brown, I understand. Then she looked up at Robin and said, can I talk with Robin for a minute? And I said, sure. So I left the room. She said, Robin, 
I know how you feel. What if I promised you an A, no matter what you did in the class? If I gave you an A before you even started, would you be willing to take the class? My daughter's not dumb. She started sniffling and said, well, I think I could do that. The teacher said, I'm going to give you an A in the class. You already have an A. Go to class. Later, the teacher explained to Steve why she had done what she'd done. She explained how she took away the threat of a bad grade so that Robin could learn English. Robin ended up making straight A's on her own in the class. And that, brothers and sisters, is exactly what the gospel does for us. Because we are right now under the completely sufficient, imputed righteousness of Christ. We already have an A. Our our, our performance of these four pathways is not the condition by which we are accepted and loved by God. The threat of, if I stood up here and threatened you all and said, you know what? You four, some of you stink at these four. <laughs> some of you are terrible at that one. You're terrible at fellowship and you're terrible at Lord's Supper attendance and you're terrible at prayer meetings and you're terrible, 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 terrible. Go home and be godly. <laughs> of course not. Of course not. And God knows that. Which is why the first thought when I see a Christian struggling to be devoted to to areas they should be devoted to is not to say, hmm, they're probably lazy. The issue is they've probably forgotten the gospel. They've forgotten what Jesus has done for them and why he did it and what that means. So the threat of failure, judgment, and condemnation has never worked. It never worked in the old covenant. It never worked in the old Testament. God knows it doesn't work. So God has said in the gospel, you're in forever. You're in all conditions have been met. All righteousness is given. All justice has been satisfied. Nothing you do can make your grade better and nothing you can do can make your grade worse. You're set free. Now let's get on with Christianity. That's what, that's what the gospel's there for. Knowing that God loves you and approves you will never be determined by your performance for Jesus, but always by Jesus' performance for you. And that, ironically, will always make you perform better and better, not less and worse. Because grace mobilizes and empowers performance, not vice versa. Performance does not mobilize and enable grace. Grace always enables, mobilizes, adds, puts wind in your sails. And ironically, these things that are given to us for maturity are the very avenues through which God wants to put that wind in your sails. (laughs) He wants to remind you of the gospel and remind you of his love and remind you of his call. And remind you of his grace. That's what all of these are about. That's what community is about. That's what worship is about. That's what the Lord's Supper is about. That's what prayer is about. So I just underscore they, 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 
Those people, those gospel-centered, gospel-loving, Jesus-loving, thankfully forgiven people devoted themselves. It's critical. It's critical. Very quickly, last two. They devoted. They devoted themselves. Now, this gets to our responsibility. This gets to our response to that gracious love and forgiveness. They were continually devoting themselves. This is an ongoing, focused, attentive, habitual pattern of devotion. It wasn't just, okay, I'm devoted to that. I commit. It was no every day of my life. I make a renewed effort in dependence upon the grace of God, thankfulness for all the grace received, not basing my identity or my performance or my self-worth on any of these things, but only in Jesus. Gratefully, I'm going to continually day by day when I fail, receive fresh forgiveness. I'm going to continually devote myself to these things. That's what devotion is. It's not one time I devoted myself. Yeah, I tried that once I failed. I stink. I can't keep up with it. So I'm going to give up and not even try. That's not what grace is given to you for. Grace is given so that you will try, fail, get up, try, fail, get up, try, fail, get up, try, fail, get up for the rest of your life. That's what continually devoting yourself means. It doesn't mean I can't do this. We've tried this. This is too hard. This complicates my life. This is too busy. This it's not, it's saying, recognizing, look, this is what God's called me to. This is my, this is, this is my pathway to maturity. He saved me that I might be conformed to the image of Christ. I want that. I want to be that. I want my kids to be that. I want my wife to be that. I want my family to be that. I want my church to be that. I'm going to devote myself to it and I'm going to fail a lot, but I'm going to keep getting up. To be devoted means to adhere to something, to be steadfastly, attentively to it, to be constant, to give unremitting care to something, to continue all the time in a place, to persevere and not faint. It's a strong, strong word, brothers and sisters. It's strong. And in the context of Acts, it was so helpful. Pastor Jonathan and I were talking about this after our elders meeting this week, and he made mention, he's like, I hope you go to Acts 6. And I said, why? And he he said, the word devoted is used in Acts 6. So let's look real fast at Acts 6 and see what context it's used there. This is the call of deacons in Acts 6. The work's getting busy. Mission's getting busy. Church is getting busy. And the needs are multiplying. And everybody's going to the pastor's. And saying, okay, pastors, we got needs. We got needs. We got needs. The widows are being neglected in the daily distribution of food. We got to find a way. You guys need to do that. And they said, no, let's get some deacons who can oversee that benevolence ministry for widows. Because we must devote ourselves, verse 4, we will devote, same word, devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So how does that help us understand what devotion is? You know what? Devotion is happening in your life when you are expressing a willingness to say no to good things in order to pursue better things. That's how you know devotion is showing up. So let me ask you this question. What are you presently right now saying no to in order to make yourself available for this pathway to maturity? What are you presently saying no to? No, we can't do that. It's going to compromise. It's going to compromise our commitments to maturity can't do it. 
Or are you making all sorts of allowances for that? You know, we won't be able to be involved in community group because and we're already not able to attend the Lord's Supper because oh, we can't serve in ministry this time because da, 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 da. And some of those reasons are legitimate, okay? They're legitimate. I'm not trying to guilt anybody. Really, I'm not. I'm not. There's, there, there, there are absolutely reg- legitimate reasons for it. But what are you saying no to to make other things happen? And that's what devotion looks like. Devotion is seen with the pastors here when they say, look, we can't, that's a great work. We could do that. We could be in, our family could be involved in that. We could, but what's the cost? What's the cost? That's the question to ask. And are you paying some cost for obedience? Are you paying some of those costs? And are you willing to pay some of those costs? So that's what devotion is. Lastly, and very quickly, themselves. They devoted themselves. Notice this is very corporate. This is not individual. We, I wish I had a whole sermon on this, but I just don't have time. The, the themselves aspect, the, the, this is, this is a whole church commitment. This is, this is what these people were doing. They saw their identity as part of the church first. And they, they recognized their identity was corporate they were together. They met together. Where? In, te- in the temple, in the home. How often? Day by day. And this was not so much something they did as something that they were. It's not, they didn't enter into, into this and say, ah, all right. I feel guilty, guilt trip, forced. Look, you don't have to tell people who have spiritual life to get together. You don't have to tell somebody Hey, you ought to do this. They don't come together as a response to a command or duty first, do they? They come together because they've been born again. It doesn't say in Acts 2, they were cut to the heart, they repented, they were added to their number, and then a pastor had to stand up and say, oh, by the way, there's four things. You need to be doing these things. No, they said, born again, cut to the heart, repent, believe, baptize, added to the church. Let's be the church. Let's be the church. So this themselves aspect is so, so important. And it really flies in the face of our Western individualism and desire for privacy. We don't want anyone poking around in our affairs. And we certainly don't want to be accused of poking around in anyone else's. And sometimes... As one writer said, the idolatry of privacy is one of the greatest hindrances to maturity in the church today. The idolatry of privacy. At least Fitzpatrick says, maturity in Christ does not happen merely because we attend Bible studies. It does not happen merely because we listen to apostles teaching. Maturity in Christ occurs when by the spirit and in God's grace, our brothers and sisters take truth and apply it lovingly, patiently, and boldly to our hearts. And that's where this, there has to, we have to get to that spot if we're going to mature. I close with this word from Paul Tripp. The church is not just a theological classroom. It's a conversation, confession, repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, and sanctification center 
where flawed people place their trust in Christ, gather to know and love him better, and learn to love others as he is designed. The church is messy and inefficient, but it is God's wonderful mess. The place where he radically transforms hearts and lives. I don't know about you, brothers and sisters. I like tidy life. I really do. I like neat schedules that don't get interrupted. I like having everything lined out and go just the way I want it to go. But guess what? We're Christians. Welcome to the mess. Welcome to the mess. The wonderful, glorious, inefficient, powerful mess. May God make us a mess. And may we be willing to enter into it and reap all the blessing and all the joy that comes through it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our time this morning in your word. Feel like we've gotten to drill down a bit this morning, not just hover over the text, but really get inside this text and really understand it. Pray that your people and our pastors, including myself, would be, we would be built up with fresh faith and resolve to be what you've called us to be in great dependence and great reliance and great joy in response to Jesus and all that he has done and been for us and all that he continues to be for us. Lord Jesus, this is not, this is not a neat calling that we've been called to. This is not a, a pretty calling. It's a messy calling. It's an inefficient calling. It's a, but it's a, it's a noble calling. It's a beautiful calling. It's a wonderful calling. And we pray that you would help us all to be devoted, to be devoted to you, to your church, to your people, to the advancement of your mission, to the lost in our community and around the world so that we wouldn't just be able to say we're an Acts 2 church, as if that means anything, but that we would be a people who have the spirit of God, the spirit of life dwelling in them and permeating from them. We ask this for the glory of Jesus. Amen.